Thanks, Megan. Good morning, everyone. Welcome uh, both here in the sanctuary as we worship together, also across the street in the chapel, also online. It's good to be with you. Good to be home. After some of travels in various places and speaking, I'm going to invite you to open in prayer, and then we'll look at this very important text together. Let's pray. Father, thanks that we can gather here on this beautiful day to listen for your voice and to allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us. We pray for the transforming work of your Holy Spirit to uh, reveal to each of us next steps that we can take toward you. And we thank you in advance for the adventure that awaits as we follow you, the ongoing work of transformation you desire to do in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm not sure uh, if you could pick one adjective to describe your summer, what that adjective would be. I would say my adjective would be joy. It was a wonderful summer in almost every way. However, in parentheses, I would put uh, with shards of disappointment. There were, there were disappointing moments in my summer, and uh, most of the disappointing moments had to do with conversations that ensued over the course of time in the many locations in which I spoke this summer, East Coast, uh, West Coast, up in Canada at some conferences. Spoke from Ezekiel, so many of you who are here uh, for a while know that it wasn't new material for me, but it was new for others. But at any rate, uh, the conversations that were disappointing to me came because it seems like everywhere I go, there's, there are uh, some people, a few, not very many, but some who really want to argue about some particular ethical component over which the church is dividing presently. People, uh, uh, for example, this summer have approached me to talk about politics and whether you can belong to that party and be a Christian or about guns and violence and whether Christians should get rid of their guns or support, about whether climate change is caused by humans, about whether Christians have a responsibility to do anything uh, regarding that. And most of all, most frequently, the issue that comes up that divides is the issue of sexual ethics. And uh, there's this sense in these conversations of people desperately wanting to know what's the right answer. And if we can get the right answer, then we'll be able to live into it. Subtext, kind of assumption, the problem is that we don't know enough. Now, I'm going to make a couple observations here, but the first observation is this. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that we don't know enough. If you go all the way back to Exodus 19, uh, uh, God declares that he's going to give the law to Israel. And that's what he says in Exodus 19. You can read it. He says, hey, uh, most going to reveal my relation to you. So the very mind of God in two tablets called the Ten Commandments, called the Law today, uh, God's going to reveal the law. And then this is what God says. If you'll obey the law, you'll be my people, I'll be your God, you'll be a kingdom and nation of priests forever. And then what does Israel say? Do you know? Here's their answer. Boom. All that the Lord speaks, we will do. In other words, Finally, now we'll know what's right and what's wrong, and once we know, we'll do it. Can I just say something to you? Rubbish. That's, that's I don't know the right word, malarkey, baloney, nonsense. Here's the thing. Ethics matter. Right actions matter. But equally important, this is very important, ethics 
are Christ, period. Your ethic is Christ. That's it. Uh, I'm going to quote from Doug Frank. I don't even know who he is, but it doesn't matter because I like what he says, and I'm going to tell you what he said. This is Doug Frank. <laughs> quote, we believe our moralism sets us apart as exemplary Christians when all it really does is confirm our mutual fixation with the rest of humanity on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. At best, moral exertions produce tinny kindness, well-meaning persons who are not fully engaged, not entirely there, judgmental, and then this is what he says, death, not life, is so served. Agree. So here's Paul's point in this passage that Megan read for us this morning. Look, uh, legalism, the law, will kill you. Christ will transform you. And we gather here every week, and we do life together as a church. We encourage uh, small group involvement. We encourage service and, and being missional in our world for a single reason. Our desire is to be nothing less than the presence of Christ in the world. But for me to be the presence of Christ, I need to be transformed because I don't look like Jesus consistently. So I need transformation, and, and, and that transformation is the most fundamental purpose in my life because when I'm transformed, I can become in increasing measure nothing less than the joy, hope, wisdom, love, service, healing power of Christ in the world. That's my calling. That's your calling. That's our calling. So how I'm transformed is maybe my most important endeavor, and that's the subject of today's text. So, so uh, what Paul is saying to us in 2 Corinthians 3 to provide a context is he's, he's teaching us the difference between law and Christ, and he begins contextually by harking back to a story in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament story is uh, in Exodus 32 to 34. You may or may not know the story, but here's the thing. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, he gets the law, he gets the Ten Commandments. While he's up there, Israel gets involved in some kind of nasty stuff down below. Uh, Moses goes down, he's really mad at the nation of Israel for their idolatry. He smashes the stone tablets, he, he throws a little bit of a fit. This is my paraphrase summary statement. Uh, gets mad, goes back up on the mountain, and when he goes back up on the mountain, he says to God, after some dialogue, he says, God, show me your glory. And then uh, God kind of passes by. Moses kind of hides in a rock. God passes by. But here's the point. God's glory, which is this like light, this Shekinah light, God's glory, you can't see it and live, but he sees kind of a, a hint of it. And that glory rubs off on him. So when he comes down from the mountain, his face is shining, right? And then this is what we read. It says the nation of Israel was, people were terrified because of his face shining. So what does Moses do? He puts, a, he puts a veil over his face. And in the Old Testament, it says, he put the veil over his face so that people wouldn't see the glory. Then Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, uh, no, that's not why he put the veil on. He put the veil on to hide the fact that the glory was fading. So watch this, Pavlovian response, right? I come down from the mountain, you see the glory, and you go, oh no! <laughs> so I cover so that I can talk to you. I go back up, 
I get another dose of glory. I come down. You see the glory. I put the veil on. Next time, I'm like this. I'm just going to keep the veil on. Then it dawns on me, do you know what? I don't even need to go and be with God anymore because I've created a Pavlovian response, though Moses wouldn't have used that word. I, I've created a Pavlovian response whereby whenever I have the veil on, you think what? Ah, he's been with God. So the veil doesn't hide the fact that there's glory. The veil hides the fact that the glory is what? Fading away. That's exactly what Paul says. In other words, the result of Moses' encounter with God was Moses desired that others would see him as holier than he actually was. And that's the real reason he put a veil on. And the practice is revealed in Exodus as being done in order to protect people from fear. But now Paul reveals the, the truth. He's hiding the fact that the glory is fading away. And how did Paul know that the glory was fading away? Well, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons he knew is because he knows the rest of the story of Moses' life. Uh, he knows that Moses gets angry, weary. I mean, he says in, Moses says in Numbers 12, hey, I'm, I'm absolutely sick of this leadership role. If I have to lead these people one more day, just kill me now. I don't, I, like, I don't want to do this. So he's, he hates his calling, and, and, and he's worn out. And then one time, God says, speak to a rock. And in anger, he says, hey, let me show you how powerful I am. And he hits the rock instead. And then God uh, brings a judgment on Moses for that. Moses is a man. He's a man, he's humble, and he knows God, he loves God, and he's got a horrible temper, and he, just like I am, he's melancholic, half the time he wants to quit, that's Moses, right? So, so the passage here, why does Paul write it? He's, he's intending to reveal the crux of just how toxic religion is, and how life-giving a relationship with Christ is. But unfortunately, the toxicity of, relation, uh, of religion is almost inextricably woven these days with uh, Christ. So you have life-giving Christ, death-dealing religion, but what, the wor what our world sees is this weird mixture of the two, and people are rejecting religion and sadly walking away from Christ at the same time. So the best thing that any of us can do in the room for ourselves, for our family, for our neighbors, for our friends is learn the difference between this legalism over here of religion and this life-giving uh, uh, quality of liberty in Christ. And then we need to learn how to tap into these resources over here and how to run from these resources, how to tap into Christ, how to run from religion. So we're going to look at uh, uh, three realities from the text, the parental problem, the prescriptive practice, and the liberating promise. Those three things, if you have an outline, you can follow along. First thing we see, the perennial problem. And the perennial problem is this, the law kills. The, 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 like the law, the legalistic religion kills. It's called, in verse 7, <clears throat> ministry of death. That's how we know that the law kills. Later in Romans and Galatians, it says the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, so, law kills. Now, uh, why have the law at all then? Here's why. The law inspires. Uh, when, you, when you look at those who embody the law, you know, love God, love your neighbor, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, 
It's inspiring. But it doesn't give you the capacity to live into that aspiration. Does that make sense? Like, woo, would it be cool to be Sermon on the Mount people? You know, turning the other cheek, going the second mile, giving our stuff away, you know, living simply, never needing credit for the good stuff we do, you know, praying in our closet, giving in secret. That's amazing, but the law doesn't provide the capacity to achieve those goals. So, here's what we're told. Verse 7, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 3, the law has glory, but, but at, at the same time, it's called the ministry of death. How does that work? Well, well yeah, I'm going to give you an illustration so you see this. Most of you know I ski, right? And I'm going to bet I ski better than most of you. I don't know that, but I'm going to bet that I ski better than most of you. And so uh, if, if you were my reference point as a skier, I'd be like this. I'm a good skier. But it's not uncommon that I run into people who are way better than me, and that's really a good thing. Because their glory shows me the gap between who I think I am and who I really could be. Does, are you with me so far? So here's my example. Uh, a couple years ago, skiing up near where I live, and I get on a, a lift, and a guy joins me, and he's 85 years old. And he's got a thick Norwegian accent, and uh, he's, from, he's from Norway, and so I ask him, have you read We Die Alone? It's a World War II book. Oh, he says, I've read it twice. And see, it's a, it's a Norwegian thing, right? And so, yeah, I've read it. I love it, you know. Uh, and then we get to the top, and then there's one more lift that takes you back into this. It's called expert-only area. So I say to him, I'll see you later. He goes, no, I'm going too. And so he's going back in the expert-only area. And I go, man, 85, he's going back there too. And now it's a two-man chair, so we ride up some more, and now he's talking to me about other Norwegian movies that I should watch uh, as we go up the second lift. And then I'm ready to go at the top of the lift. So uh, I go, I'm gonna see you all the way down. I say, I'll see you later. He says, this is what he says. I'll wait for you at the bottom. <laughs> he says, I'm not done talking. He says, now he's got, he's got to put his gloves on and buckle his boots. I'm, I go. He's still fiddling. He's 85. I'm less, right? <laughs> and I go, I'm going down this thing, and, I, and I'm not good enough to go down it the way I should. I can go down it, but halfway down, my, my quads are burning, and I, have to, I just have to stop. So I'm, I'm just catching my breath, taking a break. He bombs past me, 85 years old. He bombs past me. He says, told you, I'll wait for the bottom. <laughs> I get to the bottom, and he's like this. Been waiting for six minutes. That's what he says to me. 85 years old. Like, I feel good about my skiing until I meet somebody who can actually ski. I feel good about my piano playing until I'm in Calgary, and, I, and then this, this gal, I meet her. She introduces herself. She says, pianist. I say, oh, I play too. I like to connect. She says, let's play a little duet later. Well, I'm there to watch this my friend played viola, and as it turns out, this gal is the main act. So my friend does her little viola thing. They pull a piano out on the stage. She plays Shostakovich Piano Concerto. <laughs> From memory, note perfect, standing ovation. Afterwards, she goes, 
so when are we going to play that duet? And I go, my hands are broken. I can't, <laughs> I can't play. I don't want to play anything with you. It's like, I think I'm okay until I meet the master. Are you following what I'm saying? That's the point of the law. So hear me. Don't lower the bar. Don't take the law less seriously. That's a giant problem in evangelical Christianity. We don't, we don't think we lower the bar, but here's what we do. We cherry pick. So, so we elevate certain sins and take those seriously, and they're always the sins that we don't do. So then we feel really good about ourselves, right? Some ignore the sins of individualism. Some ignore the sins of materialism. Some ignore the sins of sexual impropriety. Um, we elevate certain sins and diminish others. Generally, not exclusively, but generally, the left talks about racism as one of the most serious sins of the day. It's an important thing. But they diminish uh, uh, the, the, the propriety sexually. The right... Uh, diminishes racism and elevates sexual sin. And so we all cherry pick and we feel like we have the moral high ground and this is why all summer long I've encountered arguments with people. Because people on the right are so mad about sex and people on the left are so mad about racism. And I go, hello, you need to meet the master. If you're going to take the law seriously, take all of it seriously because all of it collectively is Jesus. Read the Sermon on the Mount and understand the Sermon on the Mount is intended to f make you feel like you've just met a Norwegian Olympic ski master who's 85 years old. So that you go, oh wait, I thought I was okay, I got a long way to go. Do you turn the other cheek? Do you give your stuff away? Do you throw parties for people who can never repay you? Do you love your enemies? Do, 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 you, do you look at people with purity, looking for the glory of God rather than lusting? I mean, if we take the law seriously, here's what happens. We're undone. It's Romans 7. I saw the law, I died. <laughs> so, so the law has glory. In what sense? It's aspirational, but in its aspiration, it's a ministry of death because it shows you this. You can't live the Christian life. It's not difficult. It's impossible. You're not adequate, 2 Corinthians 3. You're not adequate in yourself to consider anything as coming from yourself. You can know the Bible, not display Christ. Go to church, not display Christ. Sing, not display Christ. Serve on committees, not display Christ. Fight for causes, not display Christ. Because if you cherry pick the law and you just want to argue about something, it's not, it's not Christianity, it's not, it's not Christ, it's ugly. This guy on Friday Harbor years ago, pastor there, and family just arrived on the island. They're homeless. We invite them over for dinner. They're uh, ultra, they're Christians, but ultra conservative theologically. I barbecue some chicken. We're sitting around the table. I say, hey, let's pray. I pray, and while I'm, while I'm praying, I hear this. Like, people are shuffling around. So, I open my eyes because I want to see what's going on. And this guy has four daughters and, and his wife, and all four daughters and his wife are looking for a head covering so they can cover their head while I'm praying, right? So they all grabbed their, their napkins and did this. Then I finished praying, and this guy says to me immediately, not thanks for inviting us over or uh, how was your day. First question out of his mouth, I have two daughters, one wife. He says to me, 
why don't your women wear head coverings while you're praying? I was like, now I have two major problems with that. Number one, my women, really? They're not my women, I don't own them. And number two, head coverings are a, context, are a contextual thing. It, the head covering was like an engagement ring, but that's a different sermon, so whatever. But I explained it all to him, and he goes, oh, you're totally wrong. And then we spent the whole meal arguing about head coverings. Listen, I, I watched uh, that family stay on the island. I watched all his daughters grow up and uh, rebel and run away from home and leave, leave the faith. Like, oh, we just get it right and then make sure everybody else gets it right because we argue enough. This is not Christianity. The point of the law is to show you the gap. The goal of the law, ultimately, is to break you so that you turn to Christ and receive all that Christ is so that you begin to look like Jesus because that ultimately is the point for you to look like Jesus, not win every argument. So how do we do that? Well, the prescriptive practice is this. We have to turn to the Lord, away from the law, to the Lord. The law shows me the gap, and then I go, oh, wow, what a mess I am. And then we turn to the Lord. Now watch this, verse 15. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil remains over our heart. A deception. Kind of a, oh, I can do that. But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When Moses, back in the original story, goes down the mountain and people are involved in idolatry and all that stuff. He gets mad. He judges them a little bit. He disciplines them. And then this is what he says. He says, now I will turn to the Lord. And he goes up again to be with the Lord. Moses had honor. He didn't have to turn to the Lord. He could have done a lot of different things in that moment. He could. God had said to Moses, I'll destroy the people. Moses could have gone down the mountain and said, now I'm going to stand aside because God's going to kill you. He didn't do that. He could have identified with the people and said, oh, that idol looks cool. Can I dance too? He didn't do that. To stand aside and allow God to judge, that's called truth without grace. To join in the dance, that's called grace without truth. But Jesus, we're told, appeared in the flesh, John 1.14, the word became flesh and we beheld God's glory. And what is God's glory? Watch this. God's glory is this, full of grace and Truth, boom. Like, who does that? Here's the answer. No one other than Christ. No one. Not you, not me. No one. But Christ does. And when we turn to Christ, the promise, as we'll see in a minute, is we become like Christ, full of grace and truth. So if you're, like, if you're a truth person and, like, you love to argue about stuff, and you turn to Christ, you, grace begins to bathe you. And if you're, if you're like this, whatever, anything goes, and you turn to Christ, you become a, a person concerned about truth. So what do I need to do then? I need to learn to turn to the Lord. And Moses does that. In spite of the stress, in spite of the pressure, in spite of the disillusionment and frustration, he turns to the Lord, and this becomes his source of transformation. And it's our source of transformation. So, so the liberating promise here is this. When I turn to the Lord, the promise is 
transformation. Now, last observation regarding turning is this. The, the active participle in discipleship, there's one, turning. That's your responsibility. You have to turn. God can't turn for you. You have to turn. But transformation is passive. God does it to you. But what's your responsibility? This is a quiz. What's your responsibility? Let's say it all. What's our responsibility? Turning. We have to turn. We have to learn to turn again and again and again. How do we do that? We learn to pay attention to the right things, looking for the glory of God. And here's the thing. Glory of God is all around us. It's right here amongst us. It's above us. It's beneath us. If Christ lives in us, it's within us. The glory of God is everywhere. And so life then becomes this kind of beautiful, exploratory, daily exercise of looking for the glory of God. How? By, what's the participle? Turning. Turning. So, what does that mean? Liberating promise of transformation. What does it mean? Well, transformation comes from turning. And, and so, Paul is rejecting the notion here that his responsibility is to kind of brand himself and make his life a certain something. He's rejecting that. He's saying that if we turn toward God, God changes us into who God wants us to be. I found that incredibly liberating when I was in my second year of college studying architecture at uh, Cal Poly University down in California. I went to this school I didn't know anybody, nobody knew me, and I was so glad to be out of Fresno and away from home, and I thought, I wonder, like I can be anyone, I can be anyone. But that's kind of also frustrating and paralyzing when you can be anyone. So I said to myself, who am I? And then I, I tried on different personas. So has anyone done, you know, don't raise your hand, but has anyone done this? And I was like this, I think I wanna be an extrovert. Because I look at people who go to parties and they're always laughing and having fun and stuff like that. So I, I spent a couple months going to a party every Friday night. It was exhausting. I just, I just hated it by the end. And so then I'm like this, oh, I guess I must be an introvert. So then I spent a couple of months on Friday nights lighting candles in my dorm room and reading Dostoevsky. And I was like this, this also isn't working for me. <laughs> and it's kind of annoying to kind of ask the question, who, I, who am I? and not have a clue, right? Like this is pre-Enneagram Myers-Briggs days. So I really didn't know. <laughs> who, like who am I? So I heard a sermon on this text. And the guy says, look, you just turn to the Lord and let the Lord brand you, so to speak. Let God make you whoever God wants you to be. And as I began the habit of turning to the Lord, I've, I, then suddenly things just kind of happen and you become who God wants you to be. And you don't, I don't even know who it is. I don't know if I'm an introvert or an extrovert. Sometimes I want to be with you. Sometimes I want to run far away from you. I don't know. I don't, like I just, I just want to follow Christ and allow Christ to express life through me. And the way that presented uh, back when I was in college is instead of reading Dostoevsky or going to parties where people are getting drunk and throwing up, I started playing basketball with five guys. We played three on three every Friday night and then we'd go eat pie in somebody's dorm room. 
And that was, that was life, and it was life-giving, and it was fun, but I, I wasn't like this. I must be the middle ground. I don't know what I am. I want to turn. I want to turn and let Christ make me who Christ wants me to be. Does this make sense? We must then develop kind of habits of turning. And so then the question is this, how do we do that? Well, it, inherent in turning is this, very important. Inherent in turning is this, I'm learning now to pay attention to the glory of God. Learning to pay attention to the glory of God. Because listen, the glory of God is in you. So Christ is in, is in community. That's why coffee time isn't like extra. We, we're looking for the glory of God in community. The glory of God is in creation. So we pay attention when we're going around Green Lake. Take the headphones off and ask the question, what is God teaching me through creation, through the turtles and the seasons and, and, and the blossoms in the spring and the leaves in the fall? What is God teaching me through the rain? What is God teaching me? God's glory is present in all of that. God providing through the hydration cycle so that we're still alive. God providing oxygen to us from the trees even as we provide carbon dioxide uh, for the trees. It's all beautiful. Pay attention. And then pay attention to the text. Don't multitask when you open your Bible in the morning. People open their Bible and they're like this. It's boring. Really? Were you paying attention? Sure, I'm reading and uh, I've got my computer open and I'm messaging somebody and I'm checking my social media, and I'm listening to music. No wonder the Christian life is boring. Like, you're not paying attention. So we need to learn to pay attention, and to, to explain what that is, I'm gonna share with you a story. The story comes from a book entitled Explorers of the Infinite, kind of the intersection of um, adventure sports and spirituality. Karsten Hauer and Leanne Allison are trekking 650 miles through Alaska and northern Canada to track a caribou herd. They're biologists. I want their job, but that's a different sermon. In the modern, and this is what she writes, in the modern world, you have distractions and layers of protection, ways of blocking things out in order to survive. But on our trip, it was just the opposite. Layers and blocks and filters had left, and when everything left, we began to hear what she calls a thrumming. Uh, they'd ignored it. They'd screened it out the way you'd screen out the sound of your refrigerator in your kitchen. But it was during a rest period that Howard finally heard it. It was more a vibration than a sound. It rose up through the ground, through their whole bodies, a strange melody that was coming from everywhere that faded in and out. And it wasn't made by hooves. It was a, a sound with which they were familiar. It, 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 was, it was deeper. It was an infrasonic resonance oscillating on the lower edge of human hearing. Allison picked it up also. She located this, this thrumming sound on either side of the group of caribou. And then they began to listen for the thrumming. And they said, if you really focus, you could hear it, but if you didn't really focus, you'd lose it. And then they realized that the thrumming was a more accurate guide for them to track the herd than even the footprints of the, of the herd. So they began listening to the thrumming for guidance as they were following the caribou. It's one thing to hear the thrumming, Howard muses. It's another thing to acknowledge it, and yet another thing to believe it to the extent that you're willing to spend this energy and effort following something you couldn't say for sure truly exists. I'm going to just read that again and 
put a different word in. It's one thing to hear about the glory of God. It's another thing to acknowledge the glory of God. It's yet another thing to believe it to the extent that you're going to expend energy and effort following after it. To be guided by something like that, to be rewarded for your, this is her words, to be rewarded for your faith, you begin to see the whole world as an incredibly compassionate place. And your barriers drop and your filters and protective walls drop and you understand, and this is her words, the world will take care of you. Insert God in there and you have the gospel. Like you drop everything, you pay attention and you allow God to transform you. That's what we're about. The Bible reveals the glory of God. Every element of creation reveals the glory of God. Conversations and fellowship reveal the glory of God. We don't have to go up Sinai to find the glory of God. The good news is the glory of God is all around us. The entire universe shot through with the glory of God, Colossians 1.19. So silence and meditation makes us aware of the glory of God that's already around us. But if we don't pay attention, we don't see. And if we don't see, we're not transformed. And then what do we have? Religion. If you wake up and brew some coffee in the morning, read your Bible a bit, meditate, you will be transformed. Three things regarding transformation. First of all, it's passive. Transformation happens to you, so don't worry about it. It'll happen. Second, pretty important, it's progressive. It's little by little. So you don't need to take your spiritual temperature every day. Man, am I growing? Am I, you know, it's like a, a child who goes up to the, you know, the door where the marker is every day. It says, I'm not growing. I'm not growing. Hey, let the magic happen, right? Just quit measuring. Just enjoy life. You'll grow. If you turn, you'll grow. It's progressive. And third, don't you love this? How are we being transformed? Into the image of Christ. Like I'm going to look more like Jesus. And this is what it says. From glory to glory to glory. We end up more glorious than we even thought we had the capacity for. Why? We turned again and again and again and again. We just kept showing up. Uh, a week ago today was my 40th anniversary with my wife. So we celebrated 40 years of marriage. Actually, more of you should clap because it's a big deal, right? Yeah, 40 years of marriage is a good thing. Um, and then I, put, I gave a surprise party to my wife uh, it, over at Sunkata. Our, all our kids were there and, and their spouses and our grandkids. And the, one of the most moving moments in my 40 years of marriage happened last Monday night where our three kids gave kind of speeches thanking us for the impact that our marriage and our lives had had on them. Like you young moms, you don't... They don't thank you for anything, man. It's hopeless. <laughs> but I'm just telling you, there's a payoff somewhere down the road. And one of my, one of my children just uh, kind of broke into tears and said, I've watched you. These are my words now, but this is what this one said. I've watched you more than you know. And I want what you have more than ever. Thank you, for example. Example? I mean, I'm rolling through the kind of the, 
snapshot memory thing of arguments and failures and apologies and times when I was so weary that I didn't even show I was just disengaged. But somehow, little by little, glory, 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 glory. You're looking more like Christ. That's what all, we all need it. And so what's our responsibility? Again, you guys, what's our responsibility? <laughs> Turning, that's it. You'll hear it all year. Turn. Oh, did you turn away? Whatever. Turn back. Again and again and again. Why? When we turn, we're transformed. So there's a rule of life thing. Uh, it's up here, or will be in a second, I think. This, and if you could just leave that up there for just a second, this is my encouragement to you. In a minute, Eric's going to come play music for like 90 seconds. When the singing starts, you parents should go upstairs uh, to meet with Chris, our family ministries guy. But until then, for 90 seconds, this is what I want you to do. Allow God to speak to you. What's the one step you need to take to turn to God more consistently? Don't pick 10. Don't pick two. Pick one. Maybe it's fasting. Because maybe, you're not gonna, maybe you don't need to fast from food. Maybe to pay attention, you need to fast from your phone for eight hours on Saturday or from television. Maybe you need to read your Bible. Maybe, maybe you need, to, maybe you need to, to practice meditation. Whatever it is, I'm going to encourage you to take a step, a step. Why? When you turn, here's the promise. You will be what? Transformed from glory to glory to glory. This is why we're here so that we can present Jesus to the world. So as the band comes, I'll pray, then take 90 seconds, write it down, one step, and then before the day is over, share it with someone. Jesus, meet us now. Thank you for that. What a liberating deal to know all we gotta do is turn to you again and again and again, and you transform us. We invite that work of transformation, even as we commit to turning. Thank you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.